2: Hello, I'm Basha Cummings and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. In this week's episode, my colleague Jeevan Varsagar investigates greenwashing and the case of a whistleblower, a woman called Desiree Fixler, a high flyer in the world of finance working for a company that manages billions in investments. That is until she raised questions about whether their environmental claims were more spin than substance. Now, you might not think that you care about capitalism's claims to save the world, but you should. In this episode, Jeevan looks into the corporate battle that Desiree Fixler fought, lost and then revealed in The Fix, Black Ops in Green Finance.
3: One day in March 2021, Desiree Fixler heads towards what she thinks is a routine meeting with her boss about her goals for next year.
0: So I walk in there and I sit down and he just looks at me and and pushes the paper away and said, you know, bad news.
3: Thoughts raced through her mind. What could the bad news be?
0: It was the most bizarre thing. I mean, first of all, we're in the back chamber of his office in a windowless room. And he starts ranting, everyone hates you. Nobody likes you. Nobody likes you. I don't, I, I'm just sitting there and I'm not, I just, I, I'm just, I'm um, just like, po- i like just sitting there and not reacting. And he just keeps ranting this stuff. Nobody like you. Everybody hates you. You communicate bad. And now, like, I'm like, I just remember sitting there like, wait, are you kidding? And I asked, are you firing me? And he said, no. And he said, but you should leave. And I just walk out shell-shocked.
3: This scene takes place in the Frankfurt offices of DWS, a company that manages investments, billions of dollars of investments. And Desiree Fixler is the company's chief sustainability officer. It's a really senior role. And in the weeks leading up to this meeting with her boss, the chief executive Azuka Wehrmann, she had highlighted major problems at the company. Basically, some of the claims they'd been making about how sustainable their investments were just didn't seem to add up. This is Desiree's story. It's the story of how that meeting with her boss set off a chain of events that's put a question mark against the way a multi-billion dollar industry operates. An industry that's been claiming for years that it can help save the planet. The idea, in a nutshell, was about showing investors where their money goes. And more than that, it could even protect the environment from the worst impacts of businesses. In the end, you might have a sense that Desiree did change the world but maybe not in the way she imagined. I'm Jeevan Varsaga. You're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. Today, The Fix, Black Ops in Green Finance.
0: So my name is Desiree Fixler, and I suppose these days I'm considered an activist. So I focus on reforming the ESG investing uh, market uh, so by background, um, I was originally an investment banker uh, working in London and Frankfurt. Is
3: this something you wanted to do when you were a kid, something yeah. that you, you, you heard of as a career?
0: No, I, I, I did not want to go into investment banking. I right. wanted to be a spy. I wanted to join the CIA. I studied international relations at the London School of Economics. Um, but by the time I graduated, the Cold War was over.
3: Why did you want to be a spy?
0: I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I just, it seemed exciting and mission-driven, purpose-driven, power-driven. You know, just the, the, the whole, you know, growing up in the 70s and 80s during this mad Cold War, it seemed the exciting place to be. Right to fight the good fight. So um, I was a bit idealistic and also like a little bit power hungry and wanting to see everything.
3: And was like environment something that was there as an interest from early on? Is it something that you no, as a kid? No. Okay. All right. <laughs> she held on to her dream of being a spy until she got an internship at an investment bank after university.
0: I think it was like day two, I knew this was meant for me. I was on the trading floor and all the adrenaline, the crazy, very mathematical, and I just knew this is like hand in glove, this is me. I started in 1994, and even though it was really tough and stressful, and you know, especially when you're young, you get yelled at a lot, constantly being yelled at, um, you learn. So, I had a good 10 years, very linear career Merrill Lynch, Deutsche Bank, JP Morgan. I absolutely loved it. But I also got caught up into it, right? And I became part of this whole everything's about money and the bonus. And, you know, I started losing myself, becoming that quintessential, like, wanker banker, just money obsessed and, you know, status obsessed and drifting off into that, like, 1% bubble, just becoming too materialistic. So in the mid-2000s, my best friend sent me a book called Banker to the Poor by Dr. Muhammad Yunus. And Yunus writes about how he developed a microfinance initiative in Bangladesh. And and when I read this book, I mean, that, that, that changed my world. Because he makes a business case that you could combine investing, investment, finance, and positive social impact. So that was my moment where, where I understood I could use my traditional financial skills for good, hopefully.
3: After that light bulb moment, her career took a turn to social investing. That's finance with a social purpose.
0: Now I'm starting to meet folks that are investing in clean energy, clean technology. I'm learning about climate change. I always call myself like chief translation officer between the development world, the academic world, the social do-gooder world, the eco-warrior world, and, like, hardcore for-profit capital markets people, I could, I could bring these worlds together.
3: She thought she could, but her old colleagues didn't.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like, the first reaction was, like, Desiree, social good... And banking don't go together. They're two separate worlds, right? There's for profit business, right? And then there's philanthropy, right? And don't confuse the two.
3: But Desiree was part of a small community that believed capitalism could be harnessed for good. The idea caught on a bit, enough to be given its own acronym ESG Environment, Social and Governance. The idea was to think about more than just profit when you're investing but also the way companies are run.
0: In banking in the the mid-2000s, I mean, I'll be honest, this stuff, impact investing, ESG was fringe, right? It was a niche market. It was um, gradually up until probably about 2016, 17, and then it went suddenly. And here's where it starts going mainstream.
3: Desiree says two things were going on around this time. The ESG world was changing and the rest of the world was, finally, beginning to wake up to climate change. On the ESG side, people like Desiree were focusing more on getting investors to put their money into positive initiatives. Impact investing, as it's called, like funding clean energy initiatives. But the world is undeniably changing, especially in terms of climate breakdown. More and more governments and citizens are waking up to these urgent environmental and social issues. And it changes people's risk calculations too. Investors started to understand that the old model of investing, putting money into companies which weren't run in a sustainable way, well, there were risks in that too.
0: The focus now for Wall Street is on what's called financial materiality. And that's the idea that In order to optimize your returns and your profits, you need to navigate and adapt and flourish in this changing world. There are new risk factors here, right? Climate change is real. You know, you energy company might be sitting on stranded assets. You can't extract all that coal, right? You plastic company, you are subject to consumption changes, right? Folks don't want to use a plastic straw right or styrofoam cup right so you know you've got and then you have of course the regulator right so we need to enhance and adapt and expand and so that that's that's really the start of when ESG starts to mainstream
3: so ESG and sustainable investing is already getting big
0: and then of course You have the pandemic in 2020, and that's where it goes, like, hyperbolic. First up was, you know, the social issues and and outrage, right? And again, wow, this is what happens with macroeconomic shocks. This can happen with with climate change. And so it drew everyone's attention, and that, that just takes this whole ESG concept totally mainstreams it in 2020 to the point where you feel that every executive is just speaking about some aspect of ESG or sustainability. We're going to be uh, you know, eco-warrior. We're going to fight climate change. Um, we're pledging to go net zero. We're all about diversity and inclusion. And these statements were very warmly received at the same time The finance sector understood this was one of the biggest growth markets out there. So a hell of a lot of ESG products and services were accelerated on a conveyor belt, right, in in 2020, 2021.
3: Desiree, just to come back into the timeline of your career. At that point when you were um, working with companies, did you ever question a company's motives for wanting to Bring in someone like you in that ESG advisory role. Did you ever sort of have suspicions about why they would want to?
0: Uh, No, now I do. But back then, no. I was also very idealistic, I guess, and maybe naive.
3: Desiree's career had been going through the roof with the explosion in ESG. But here's where we get back to that row with her boss in a windowless office in Frankfurt. She'd got a very big offer. DWS, a company that manages investments, the biggest company of its kind in Germany, was looking for a chief sustainability officer. And this job was a huge opportunity.
0: I was, I was really excited. I mean, almost a trillion dollars of assets under management in every asset class. And so, um, you know, the, the impact that could be had would, was enormous.
3: So would be the paycheck. But there was just one thing. DWS had a parent company, Deutsche Bank, which had made a habit of being in the headlines for all the wrong reasons. Today Deutsche Bank was fined $150 million for their associations with Jeffrey Epstein for essentially enabling him uh, while he was making all these payments to co-conspirators and other women. The state's Department of Financial Services said Tuesday that Deutsche failed to monitor Epstein properly, despite ample public evidence of his misconduct. It says the bank processed hundreds of transactions that should have had more scrutiny. The explosive New York Times report on the tax situation of U.S. President Donald Trump is raising some uncomfortable questions for Germany's largest lender, Deutsche Bank. Namely, why did Deutsche Bank loan Mr. Trump $2 billion at the same time other banks, including all U.S. lenders, were not willing to do so?
0: You know, the other thing is that my eyes were open, so Deutsche Bank had a lot of problems. I mean, everyone's aware, right? It sometimes features on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, the FT, that, you know, yet another scandal, yet another regulatory violation, right? It was a a company that was considered one of the most scandal-prone banks over the last 20 years. The company was being investigated because they ignored suspicious activity reports on Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, it was a company that was being threatened to, to be shut down because of financial control violations in the U.S.
3: And you knew all this? Yes. So what did you, what did you hope to do when you, when you got on there? And as, as you say, you went in with your eyes open, but you hoped to bring about change? Yeah.
0: So, you know, I'm known for being outspoken. They know who I am. When they sent through the role, they wrote that that my job was to be a change maker. And so, and like, this is something I can do. And, you know, it's CEO is relatively new, both at Deutsche Bank Group and at DWS. And they were intent on restructuring and changing the firm's culture and putting Deutsche Bank, the group on on the right foot. And and like I was ready for this. For this adventure, but my eyes were open, yes.
3: Okay, let's talk about the people side. So your first week, what sense do you get from people around you about how they relate to you?
0: They embraced me. I mean, they were so excited. It was really overwhelming how many people reached out to meet me, to work with me, to support me. So the first part of my job is to do kind of a gap ass- assessment, like, figure out where we're good, let that be. And and my job right now is to focus on the areas where there are holes in investment, deficiencies, bad practice, and fix it, right?
3: So Desro joined DWS on a wave of optimism and enthusiasm, ready to fix the company and help fix the world. The way things worked inside DWS was that they had an internal system that looked at how good companies were on a bunch of environmental, social and governance measures. And it gave them a score. And based on that score, portfolio managers were meant to make their decisions about where to invest. This rating platform was key to everything. So understandably, it was the first thing Desiree looked at. And it became the first moment that she didn't like what she saw. When Desiree started at DWS back in 2020 a German company called Wirecard was in the headlines. Wirecard was a popular payment processor, a bit like PayPal. But in spring of that year, the company was collapsing after it emerged that executives were allegedly involved in wide-scale fraud and corruption. Its former chief executive and a number of other executives have since been arrested. So Desiree decides to look up Wirecard's ESG rating. And remember, ESG isn't just about the environment. The E is environment, the S is social, and the G is for governance, how a company is run. The rating is supposed to consider all of those. And just to bear in mind, massive fraud allegations do not equal good governance.
0: And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the reports being generated from this ESG engine. And you've got Wirecard in the spring of 2020. So it's out there that there there are severe fraud allegations against this company this ESG engine is giving wirecard the second highest rating and citing great business ethics corporate governance right so it's a system that has ratings from A to F and wirecard is during this tumultuous time is given a B the second highest rating saying that this company is really well run so what I very quickly see is that this ESG system that's being touted as world-class, sophisticated, using artificial intelligence, I very quickly see the system is crap. This ESG engine is broken. We need to trash it. It's crap.
3: The rating system was telling investment managers to buy into a company whose bosses were facing arrest for running it so badly. And if the governance part of ESG was off in the system, it was likely that the E and the S were too. We asked DWS for an interview, but they declined. They told us they're taking the allegations very seriously and cooperating with the authorities. And it's difficult for them to say much while the investigation is going on. It's a, it's a really extraordinary thing. But I just want to come back to the climate question, because that's maybe one of the big questions we're trying to ask in the course of this. And was this a company that was just unsustainable being sold as green, or a company that was just really environmentally damaging, or was there the prospect of that? When you when you were looking through these examples, did you come across anything that kind of rang an alarm bell on that front?
0: Yes. I worked with risk management, and we were assessing fossil fuel exposure. And alarm bells went off because thing, investments that have severe climate risk, right? So. These severe risk investments should be getting an F rating. And what I picked up on is that the system is being more gentle with it, and giving it given these severe risks, these climate-severe risk investments, better ratings. What kinds of climate risk, Desiree? Coal coal investments, fracking, um, oil sands.
3: This is something that Desiree has never said publicly, that the DWS system seemed to be giving gentler ratings To companies that posed big climate risks, that's huge.
0: The system is not supposed to be there to rationalize a dirty investment. The system is supposed to be there to flag the risk. That's what ESG is about. And so something was, was off. And it gets very, very complicated. But just in summary, I believe that their risk assessment system was rigged a bit. That's the best way to put it. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team
2: that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
3: So Desiree raised these concerns, but no one seemed to be taking this seriously. She started to feel more and more frustrated. There was a lot of talk, emails flying back and forth, but nothing was being done to address this massive issue. That they were, according to Desiree, misleading investors about ESG ratings. In the end, though, this conversation couldn't just rattle around internally. Like all big public companies, DWS had to say something to its investors. It had to publish its annual report.
0: So you start going, it becomes almost Kafka-esque, where they're like internal meetings and committees and workshops and just constantly talking about it. And another report is commissioned and we're just all bumping into each other and we're gearing up to issue the annual report.
3: This is a key moment because in this report, DWS doesn't just have to disclose their finances. They also have to report on how they are doing in terms of ESG. If their system is broken, they can't claim it works.
0: We're going to get in trouble.
3: Desiree was terrified that the financial regulator was going to call them out. But the report was written. And when Desiree saw it, it was full of claims about how well the company was doing with ESG.
0: I'm editing the annual report. I have a draft copy and I've redlined it. And I've just said, not true, not true, not true, not true, right? I'm not going to be the fall guy. I'm not signing off on this stuff. Right, these are misstatements. Give us an
3: example of a statement that that is isn't true, or like the key things that you thought were not true there
0: in that annual report. So, the the number I had been given was that roughly four hundred and fifty billion euros of assets under management complied with the firm's stated ESG integration policy.
3: But if the system is broken. Then, Desiree said, none of those assets can actually be counted as ESG. By this point, Desiree wasn't the only person concerned. We've seen internal emails and other documents suggesting other executives had a similarly sceptical assessment of what DWS was claiming in public. In February 2021, a group of senior people from within the company put together a presentation about their concerns. Desiree delivered it.
0: I deliver it. And the CEO stops me in the middle and just says, you know, well, you know, I hear what you're saying, but the market thinks we're doing a good job.
3: The chief executive sends people on the team an internal marketing slide featuring quotes from analysts calling DWS a leader in ESG.
0: I just, of course, I immediately responded. Yeah, the market is, the sell side analysts are saying that because you're telling them that. We, the company, are self-reporting this stuff. They're just regurgitating what we're saying. But I'm telling you that's not true, that we have to stop that. That's called propaganda. Here's the reality check.
3: Did you understand from the CEO's reaction that this was kind of fatal? I
0: I didn't know it was fatal. I knew he wasn't going to be happy with me. It never occurred to me that he would fire the sustainability officer.
3: But that is what happened. As you've heard, Desiree was called in for a meeting at the offices of Fazoka Wehrmann, the one where he yelled and told her no one liked her.
0: It was the most bizarre thing. He starts ranting. Everyone hates you. Nobody likes you. Nobody likes you. Like, just sitting there and not reacting. And he just keeps ranting this stuff. Nobody likes you. Everybody hates you. You communicate that. And now, like... Wait, are you kidding?
3: Soon after, Desiree's world fell apart.
0: I get fired, and the next day the annual report comes out. And of course I look at the key sections that have to do with ESG. And of course, my edits weren't weren't accepted. They went out with the misstatements. And that's when the penny drops. Like, okay, now I think I got what's going on here.
3: We asked DWS about their annual report, and I'll paraphrase their response. They told us the worries about it were misplaced. They said that some of their traditional funds could also take sustainability risks into account. But that doesn't mean those funds are part of the company's specific ESG portfolio. And they say they've always labelled very clearly those funds which are part of the ESG portfolio and the other ones which only factor in ESG considerations. After she was fired, Desiree wrote to officials at Deutsche Bank and DWS.
0: I attach a five-page dossier with all the evidence, and I say, I think I just got fired because I told the board that there's greenwashing.
3: In other words, the company's environmental claims were marketing spin rather than substance.
0: And the executives at Deutsche don't write back to me. And then the next thing I know, they send Bloomberg something and They go out into the press that I was this terrible sustainability officer. I didn't know what to do because at this point I'm fired. My reputation is now ruined in the public. I can't get another job. And then they also throw me out of the country. So they immediately revoke my work permit and I have to leave Germany. So I'm homeless. And I really believe that the CEO and his little buddies, they they sought to just like crush her. I heard that they called me roadkill. little girl, roadkill, right? Just annihilate her, right? And we'll continue doing what we're doing. The market believes in us, right? And we've gotten away with it.
3: So Desiree makes a choice. You must've known that when you went public, I know that you said that they they went public first in a way with the press release, but you must've known that when you spoke up about what happened there, it would make it hard for you to get another job. Why did you do it anyway?
0: You know, really, two reasons. I mean, one, honestly, to clear my name. I mean, just to tell the truth. I wanted to set the record straight. But you know what the other trigger was? Is that I was also reading the enormous amount of propaganda coming out of DWS after they fired me. All this blah, blah, blah. ESG is at the heart of everything we
4: do. At DWS, we have been systematically integrating ESG criteria into our investment process. ESG, we believe, will remain high on investors' agendas in 2019. Most notably, we have developed a highly sophisticated esg analyze tool, the ESG engine. At DWS, the integration of ESG information is an integral part of our investment process DWS offers the full spectrum of ESG from active, passive to alternatives.
0: We're noting that climate change is worsening, and yet the rhetoric and the propaganda is just ratcheting up out of control, where everyone's patting on their themselves on the back for aspirational statements, right? Just making statements and feeling good about it. And there's this disconnect with between the aspirations and the propaganda and pledges and actual action and outcomes, right? And we just needed to call bullshit on it.
3: Desiree's decision to speak out would spark something massive.
2: Now we're just getting some breaking news out of DWS. Deutsche Bank's DWS unit, we understand, has been raided. And this is amid allegations of greenwashing. The company, DWS, has been facing the allegations since its former chief sustainability officer, Desiree Fixler, went public with them in August. And that's been prompting regulatory probes in the US and Germany. And we understand that this morning there were fresh, of course, uh, some of the units have been raided amidst these allegations of greenwashing
3: don't have the full picture yet of, sort of what exactly prosecutors are probing or the federal police. What we do know at this stage is that multiple police officers or authorities have entered the DWS buildings and the Deutsche Bank buildings here in Frankfurt.
2: We know that DWS has actually denied the claims, but of course the, the raids just add to a list of regulatory and, and legal issues for Deutsche Bank.
3: In May of this year, the German police raided DWS as part of an investigation into allegations that they made misleading ESG claims. Azoka Wehrmann resigned as CEO in June. We approached him for comment, but we didn't get a reply. The investigation is ongoing.
4: It was quite (laughs) funny because I was in a press conference and I was really surprised and shocked and I I couldn't concentrate on the press conference anymore and I started to send emails to all my contacts.
3: That's journalist Maika Schreiber describing the moment when she found out about the raids on DWS.
4: I'm working for Süddeutsche Zeitung, the biggest uh, German daily newspaper, and I'm doing this for quite a while, for now almost 20 years. I'm I started covering Deutsche Bank in 2015, and as as was part of Deutsche Bank, I also covered DWS.
3: Micah had covered a lot of shenanigans at Deutsche Bank in her time as a journalist.
4: What I feel is that there is a deep culture of cover-up. So every time they have a problem, they try to um, throw it under the carpet and to not really tackle the problems. And I think this was also uh, the case for the greenwashing issue um, that made it even worse because they didn't tackle the problem when it, when it came, came on the table.
3: But this was something new. We asked Deutsche Bank about Micah's comments and they said they strongly reject the allegation about how they handle misconduct reports. Georgia Bank said they investigate all allegations of possible misconduct comprehensively. She started reporting on the greenwashing allegations, and one of the funds she decided to look at was the DWS fund Top Dividende. It is the largest mutual fund in Germany, and it's now worth 20 billion euros. It was also supposed to be ESG integrated. This means that DWS fund managers said they were carefully considering risks that could arise from climate change, for example, and excluding particularly controversial companies. But it's hard to square that promise with the companies in the fund.
4: For example, DWS explicitly mentioned tobacco as a business area whose influence on the society is rated negatively. So um, and then we found out that Top Dividende invested more than 1800 million, uh, so a lot in such tobacco companies like British American Tobacco, Philip Morris, and Imper- Imperial Brands.
3: So DWS itself says on its own website that tobacco companies are bad for society. And yet this ESG fund is full of them. They've since ditched the tobacco companies from the fund. But you could say the new lineup isn't much better. The top company is TC Energy a Canadian business that operates natural gas and oil pipelines. The top 10 holdings include BHP, the world's biggest mining company, Shell and Total. And when Micah read the small print about this fund, it said something startling. Even though the entire fund is marketed as ESG integrated, DWS says only 60% of the companies in this fund meet ESG standards. A full 40% of the companies included in this ESG fund don't meet any ESG standards at all.
4: So 40% are, are dirty or whatever. So this is quite amazing, given the greenwashing allegations from last year.
3: This isn't just a story about one company.
1: What happened at DWS has sent ripples through the whole industry. So my name is Tarek Fancy. I used to be BlackRock's chief investment officer for sustainable investing. Tarek has been watching what happened at DWS closely. The fact that regulators on both sides of the Atlantic are stepping up finally to hold companies to their word is a useful thing. I also worry, though, it's a bit of a distraction, right? Because they're effectively going to these companies and saying, hey, this stuff you're saying you're doing, you should at least be doing it. The fundamental bigger problem that I have, this stuff doesn't even work even if they did it well.
3: Tarek's journey was remarkably similar to Desiree's. He was once the chief sustainability officer at the asset manager Blackrock before becoming disillusioned with ESG.
1: You know, the biggest thing for me was that I realized it's actually harmful. So the original conception I had was that this is giving wheatgrass to a cancer patient, right? There's no reason to believe wheatgrass juice is not gonna harm the cancer patient, but it's not gonna help. And then I started wondering if it was something worse because I left the industry. And then I would go and talk to people and they were getting really excited about sustainable investing, right? Because they were seeing all this marketing coming out of Wall Street saying these magical new green products that you could buy, footnote with higher fees, footnote two that have no impact, right? But you can buy these things and feel good about yourself. So I knew it didn't work, but nobody else knew that it didn't work in the same way I did. And they were eating up all the marketing that was coming out of Wall Street. And that made me worry. This is well after I left that, wait a second. It could be much worse than I think because if people all believe that it works when it doesn't, you know, the fact that I've left and I've said, okay, this is useless, I'm not going to spend my time on it, doesn't change the fact that if everybody else spends years figuring out the same thing that I just figured out, we're going to burn valuable time. We're going to kick the can down the road and actually not make the changes we need today because we're all, you know, engaged in what I call a convenient fantasy to address an inconvenient truth. And so my decision to go public hinged on one thing, I worked on a study with a university in Canada. I knew the president of the university. I said, listen, there's something I'm really interested in around sustainable investing and sustainable capitalism. And worked with them when we created a study where we tried to see if the messages coming out of Wall Street and all the stuff around sustainability and all this green stuff they were saying that I had started to realize was largely PR, if that was actually misleading the public and delaying government reforms, right? And the idea being that if, that's the case you realize that we're not just giving wheatgrass juice to a cancer patient. We're giving wheatgrass juice to a cancer patient, and we're marketing it so aggressively and overselling it that the patient's delaying chemo, right? Because then, So we worked on a study, and we found that that's actually true. If you take groups of people in the U.S. and Canada, and you show them all of these wonderful messages of business saying we're going to lead the way, all of these messages which are PR stuff that I knew was just generally behind the scenes didn't make sense, it was actually extremely damaging because it was creating a delay. We just can't trust businesses to save the environment. Tarek says that's a fantasy. It would be like if Martin Luther King said in the you know 60s, he said, like, we need to fight racism. And he said, we should use our 401ks to, like, not own companies that are discriminate against black people. It's nonsensical. They said, we live in a democracy. We're going to march on Washington. We're going to tell them to change the rules because it's in the public interest. That's what we should be doing right now. We should be demanding the governments follow expert recommendations they've known about for decades. Sometimes they're politically unpopular, but that's why we have to have this political conversation.
3: So for Tarek, we need to stop thinking about ESG, leaving the environment in the hands of businesses and focus on government.
1: At this point, in the next few years, we're either going to have this debate and put in place policies by the middle of the decade that could have a chance of getting vaguely close to where we need to be by the end of the decade, or we won't do it. And if we don't do it, we're not only going to endanger the planet, right, by kicking the can down the road. I'm also worried we're endangering the political foundations of capitalism.
3: From what you've heard, you might be thinking that endangering the foundations of capitalism is a good thing that maybe what we need is a revolution. But that doesn't seem very likely. Desiree went into ESG investing to change the world. And she's certainly made waves. What she's exposed could change the way that finance operates and the claims that money men are able to make about investments. But where does she think real change will come from? I just want to ask for a couple of ref- reflections on what happened. We're saying like the power of finance to change the world, the Muhammad Yunus book. Do you still think that's the case? Or do you think that you've been a bit disillusioned by this experience? I mean, do you think that it is still possible if you have these enormous problems like climate change, is it really the case that that money can be moved to fix this kind of problem?
0: Uh, No. Uh, So the answer to your question is, yes, I was a bit too idealistic, well-intentioned, but a bit clueless before. And so, no, I'm a firm believer that today the capital markets can't do it by itself. That voluntary actions cannot solve these problems. We need mandatory action. We need the government stepping in, right? We need legislation, right, to confront climate change, to fight it. Telling people how to invest never works. Reminding people that if you lie, we'll arrest you. That works. Well, she couldn't care less about society. We need governments coming in both with financial regulation on more disclosure and then actual legislation, whether it's a carbon tax or a full working, you know, cap and trade system, and then the capital markets will follow. Then there's a role for the capital markets.
3: Do you think that it, is what you're saying that there is a role for sustainable investing? Or is it more the case that once government comes in and sets the rules at a certain point, all investing becomes sustainable? And, you know, there isn't really a role for like ESG anymore. It's just, that's what all investing is. It's within this framework.
0: I think there'll always be problems in society and the concept of impact investing. It's up to everyone to make their own decisions. And as long as companies are honest and fully disclosing, right, their climate risk. We're now in a world where ESG needs to be substantiated with data and evidence. If you say it, you need to back it up and you need to do it. So I I do believe we're making progress. I am optimistic. But we're going through a very challenging period right now.
3: We left our mics running as Desiree packed up at the end of the interview. She was off to her next meeting. She's still in the ESG world, advising venture capital funds on sustainable investing. She's done well for herself, even in this post-DWS life.
0: But it's not that I left the world of luxury. I still... Desperate to turn left on the plane, yeah. so I like I call myself out. Right, I live in Kensington, <laughs> right, but but again, right, I you know I, it's my life and I want to also enjoy it. But at the same time, right, I'm a flawed human being and I'm full of contradictions, right. But I like to call things out. But yeah,
3: but she wants to do things differently than she did before, back when she worked for DWS.
0: I believe that I was one of the distractors, and I have to stop distracting. And I need to focus the government. That is the thing, right. Now I can still help the capital markets; they're not usually exclusive, right? But the government has to act first,
4: mm-hmm. right?
0: And I can't. I'm no longer going to be the whitewash for the corporate world, the ESG wash, right?
3: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. It was reported by me, Jeevan Varsager, and Brenna Daldorf. The lead producer is Brenna Daldorf. The assistant producer is Imi Harper. Sound design is by Mao Liceto. The executive producers are Matt Russell and Kerry Thomas.
2: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast. If you like what we do, you like our story. Traffic jams,
0: tailgating, pileups—ugh, oh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
3: Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure?
0: Want
4: to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out?
3: Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh
1: God, What Now, The Bunker and Paper Cuts.
3: Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your
2: podcasts. If you like our investigations and you want to support us and you want to get more of what we do, then you can join us as a member of our newsroom. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use my code, BASHA50. That's B A S I A 50. Thank you and I'll see you next week.